Hello everyone and welcome to Chill Pill. My name is Emma Ives and I'm the creator slash host of this fabulous podcast. I created this podcast since I love all things medicine. I love reading about it, I love talking about it, and my roommates was getting kind of sick and tired of hearing about it. I'm not a medical professional, so I'll never give advice on the medical stuff. Please seek out your primary care physician for advice. I'll link all my sources in the description as well as mention them throughout the podcast. quarantine. I'm still in Ohio, going to summer term online, as well as studying for the PCAT. Hopefully, it doesn't get cancelled in July. While I've been stuck in quarantine, I've spent a lot of time on the internet. As well as writing final papers, researching science, writing this podcast, I've also started a Twitter. At CP with M Ives. Go give me a follow. I try to post interesting science things at least once a day. And speaking of interesting science things, I have fallen in love with two very interesting science pages. One is Liang's Lab News on Instagram and Facebook. She is a science journalist based in Germany. The goal of her page is to make science make sense, which is something I can totally get behind. She also has a background in biology like me and is working on her master's in science communication. She posts on a wide variety of science topics and they're easy to understand, especially if you don't have a science background. Another page that's been around for a while, but I recently found is This Podcast Will Kill You. The Aarons talk about diseases, their history, and their impact on society. Each episode starts out with a recipe for a cocktail. We definitely need some quarantinis right now. <laughs> Am I right? They have also covered antibiotics and aspirin like I have, as well as many other fun science topics and diseases. I say fun because I'm weird and I think infectious diseases are cool. They're currently working on an anatomy of a pandemic series for COVID-19 if you're interested. So, go give those scientists all your love as they are so talented and put in a lot of work into making science fun. I am currently looking at pharmacy schools and trying to figure out what to do with my life and write this podcast. My dad suggested being an astronaut. This is one of his go-to suggestions as he's also suggested this to my sister and said that she should be like Matt Damon in The Martian. I've always loved space, so much so that when I was little, I built a rocket ship out of a cardboard box and turned our living room into the International Space Station on many different occasions. I even cried when the Opportunity mission was deemed over. Rest in peace, Opie. You're a good little rover. As a sci-fi connoisseur, I have watched a lot of Star Trek and other sci-fi shows, and I've noticed a very interesting trend. Bones of the original Enterprise seem to have plenty of nurses and doctors, Picard's Enterprise, Janeway's Voyager, and even Discovery had a lot of botanists and engineers of whatever kind. And if you're looking at non-Star Trek sci-fi, the Orville had a doctor, Firefly had a doctor who did a lot of general things, and I don't even know if Star Wars had medical doctors, but I'm going to assume so. But I didn't see a single pharmacist, nor did anyone ever go to a pharmacy. As my idol is Dr. Beverly Crusher, I was a little sad that my future career might not have a place in the cosmos. Also, I would be damned if my little botanist sister made it to Mars before me. The launch of the Mars 2020 rover and the SpaceX flight from American soil to the International Space Station, we are one step closer to long-term trips to the moon and Mars. It is clear that these astronauts on the Mars 2024 missions will need medicine, and I don't think there's an interstellar pharmacy on the way. So for fun, I googled, do they need pharmacists in space? And you'll never guess what I found. NASA actually employs five pharmacists. The pharmacy at the Johnson Space Center has been officially around since about 2000. The first pharmacist to ever work for NASA was Tina Bayus. 
Her team assembles convenience and contingency med kits for the astronauts on the International Space Station. The convenience kit is filled with what you would typically take on a day-to-day basis on the International Space Station. Medication for motion sickness, pain, congestion, allergy, or sleep issues. The contingency kit is filled with things for emergencies such as antibiotics and cardiac life support. A lot of thought has to go into these med kits as there's a lot of things to consider when packing the flight kit for the astronauts. The medicines need to be selected on a basis of volume and mass. This is a little hard for medicines in liquid or powdered form. There are limits based on what the environmental systems in orbit can handle. Astronauts may need to take medications while on a spacewalk or take a medication that they don't normally take on Earth. Bayus and her team often advocate for drug tolerance testing to make sure that there aren't any unwanted side effects for astronauts after they left Earth. One challenge that Bayus and her team are currently facing is long-haul flights and prolonged time in low gravity, as there are some side effects on the human body. Pharmacologically active compounds have been in space since the beginning of human spaceflight. The Gemini 7 spacecraft carried 10 compounds, while the med kits on the Apollo 11 carried 13. In 2017, the ISS contained 107 medications according to NASA. However, most of the astronauts who need to use these medications were in low orbit for a limited time. While the idea that time and space alters the physiology of the human body isn't new, we have a limited understanding on drug pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics in space, especially prolonged spaceflight. Most of the data we do have is from low-orbit missions, the NASA twin study, and parabolic flights. Since the Mercury missions in the 1960s, it's been known that fluids within the body shift when astronauts go to space. We now know this is due to the way the astronauts sit during launch, as well as the changes in gravity. There are also changes in blood flow and plasma flow. Because certain drugs use the bloodstream to get where they need to go in the body, this altered blood flow has a potential to affect the rate of drug absorption, distribution, and elimination. The passage of gases between lungs and capillaries is also different in space. This, combined with higher concentrations of aerosols being able to be inhaled in microgravity, could affect the absorptions of drugs given by inhalation. Bone loss and muscle atrophy are very big problems that astronauts face when they return. In microgravity, we are not using our muscles like we do here on Earth. We have all seen the astronauts floating about on the International Space Station. This causes a loss in bone mineralization and muscle mass and an increased risk of injury. It has been noted that 30% more muscle loss is observed on longer missions. This leads to hampered performance and post-flight orthostatic symptoms as well as issues with drugs binding to tissues. There are countermeasures in place to help with muscle loss and strength, but these measures do not prevent it. Spaceflight greatly affects the immune system. Studies have seen changes in T-cell function and responses to stimuli during these prolonged space flights. In addition, studies have seen a decrease in beneficial bacteria in the astronaut's gut microbiome, which may make them more susceptible to infection. Another fear is how pathogens grow during spaceflight. A 1985 study by Tixidor et al. demonstrated increased antibiotic resistance of Staph aureus and E. coli that were cultured in space. Studies of yeast grown in space have shown increased mutation rates, which could suggest faster rates of mutation for pathogens. This is concerning for space flights that are expected to last at least three years. However, more research is needed to fully understand pathogen growth and resistance in space. There needs to be more study of antibiotics and how they function in low-gravity environments. According to the NASA twin study, immune response to getting vaccinated in space did not change significantly while aboard the station. The immune system can affect various aspects of pharmacokinetics. This is the movement of drugs within the body. 
altered immune activity may be associated with hypersensitivity issues in astronauts and could increase their risk for hypersensitivity reactions to medication. There have only been three drugs whose pharmacokinetics have been studied in space, acetaminophen, scopolamine, and antipyrene. However, the data from these studies is over 30 years old, and no new studies have been planned as of 2019. Of course, there are issues with dosing astronauts in space for study, such as not being close to a hospital and no easy way to return an astronaut quickly if something were to go wrong. However, you don't want to get out in the middle of space on your way to Mars and find out your medication doesn't work. Our few suggested studies are necessary to determine if there's a similar risk-benefit ratio in space as there is on Earth. There is very little known about pharmacodynamics in space. This is the study of effects of drugs and their action mechanism. Medications are administered under the assumption that they act in a similar way as on Earth, and there's not a lot of scientific data to back this up. Bed rest models have been used to stimulate physiological changes in microgravity, but models aren't always as good as the real thing. It will take just under 12 months for humans to get from Earth to Mars. That's a very long trip. And even if drugs are stored properly, there's a point when they're no longer function like they're supposed to. Temperature and humidity on the International Space Station aren't an issue for drug storage. However, radiation might accelerate degradation of medication. A 2011 study by Du et al. found 4 out of 14 medicines stored for 28 months on the ISS did not meet United States Pharmacopeia USP, requirements when compared to medications at ground control. The number of medications that failed stability requirements was associated with time spent in space. Hopefully in the future, there will be a compounding pharmacy in space to produce medications that are resistant to degradation. So besides making med kits for astronauts, what do the pharmacists at NASA do? When Bayus was offered the pharmacy position at NASA, a review revealed that a lot of practices were out of date. The decision was made to open an on-site pharmacy with staff to manage everything. It opened on 31st of March, 2003. A lot of work Bayus does is the education of people outside the healthcare profession on what pharmacy is and how to involve it in the process of sending people to space. Within the healthcare setting, the professionals a pharmacist works with have a common language. But outside the field, this common language doesn't exist. Bayus was self-taught when it comes to integrating pharmacy at NASA. It took a lot of hard work to be included with engineers and flight program managers. Pharmacy used to not be included in the beginning of planning a mission. It wasn't on purpose. The people at NASA just did not think about the mission from that perspective yet, according to Bayus. Thanks to the work of Bayus, pharmacy is included from the very start of a mission. Pharmacists work with the astronauts before a flight, teaching them how to use their medications while in space. In the future, with the advent of commercial space flight, Pharmacists will be needed to manage the disease states of individuals who might not be as healthy as the astronauts who get to go to space. Another field of pharmacy that will most likely find its way to space is pharmacogenetics and pharmacogenomics. These fields make up what is called personalized medicine. NASA currently identifies susceptibility and response to various sleep and alertness medications for crew members prior to a flight. This is used to create dosing and medication guidelines for individual crew members. The optimization of astronauts' medications makes sure that they have the desired effect and don't have any adverse reactions while in flight. There are some unknowns. As medications become personalized on Earth, the pharmacokinetic and pharmacodynamic profiles might change in space environments. Many reviews recommend expanding pharmaceutical knowledge through study in low-gravity environments so that we can be prepared for longer deep space missions. 
The first launch from U.S. soil since the conclusion of the space shuttle program takes place on May 27th at 4.32 p.m. Eastern Time. The pharmaceutical field is reaching new heights as we get closer to sending humans to the moon and eventually to Mars. There are new obstacles to overcome in areas of pharmacy we haven't even thought of yet, like are we going to open a pharmacy on the moon to make compounding and dispensing medication for missions to Mars easier? Or are we going to produce our medication on the moon so that supplies don't need to get set up from Earth? When we finally establish a permanent presence on Mars, is a pharmacy going to need to be there? If so, how is it going to be supplied? If you can wait five or six years, NASA, I would be happy to volunteer. Is Star Trek going to finally add a pharmacist to the Enterprise on their new series with young Christopher Pike? Because I would really appreciate it. One thing you can be certain of as humans continue to spread out amongst the stars is that they'll need medicine. And pharmacists will need to boldly go where no pharmacist has gone before. Remember, pandemics don't go away just because we live in a first world country and have modern medicine. It's going to take a lot more work and patience to get through this. Remember to wash your hands regularly and when you go out, cover your face and practice physical distancing. If you feel sick, stay at home. And if you need to go to the doctor, call ahead first. I'm not a medical professional, so please consult your primary care physician for advice if you were intrigued by anything you heard today. I do all my own research and my sources are linked in the description, so please go give all those scientists your love. The intro music was done by Cooper Wood and the artwork was done by me.